We're going to uh, continue our study in Ephesians today. So if you if you have your Bibles, you can you can open up to Ephesians chapter four. If you don't have your Bibles, I'm just going to be reading everything anyway, so you can just follow along. Um, we're in Ephesians four four, cruising right through this book, uh, trying to wrap it up before oh nine or in oh nine. Um, I want to deal with two things this morning. I want to talk about one faith and one hope, or better translated, one expectation. One expectation. I'm going to probably do them in reverse order, though, than how they appear in the text. I'm going to uh, kind of start, I think, with saying some things about one faith and then get into the one expectation that comes out from faith. So let me just read uh, Ephesians 4, 4, and, and uh, I'm just going to replace the word hope with expectation, just because it's, um, it's not talking about a wish or uh, a desire, but an expectation. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you also were called in one hope, one expectation of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Um, we spent a little time last week describing the reality of true unity in Christ. We kind of ended up with that towards the end. Um, and we saw that unity is its not something that we're trying to create, but rather it is something we are trying to preserve because it is something that God has completed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In the resurrection, the dead womb of the earth, so to speak. I, I say that because that's how it's described in some of the Psalms and prophets. The earth, the dead womb of the, of the fallen earth, gives birth. Something comes out from it. Christ is raised out from among the dead. Um, and it gives birth to one new man. Christ is the head, and many who have been made one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6.17, we come forth into a sharing of his life. We who have been crucified with him, by faith we come forth in his resurrection. In other words, we live by his life, we live by that one spirit, God only has one spirit, we come to that unity. And because, because of this, Paul realizes and he proclaims that that we are not many, we are one. We are not many trying to be like one. We are not many trying to act like this one. We are the corporate body of the one. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. All, that is, who, who have been born of that spirit. And so in this body, regardless of whatever darkened thoughts might exist in our mind, to the contrary, there is really only one life, one spirit, one mind, one judgment. And our ignorance, uh, you know, along with our refusal to know that life, can cause us to bring, bring into him our own nothingness and blindness uh, and drag it on into his finished work. And that can be, and certainly often is, uh, the case, uh, and, and though that can prevent the body from from uh, uh, working, functioning, 
as an expression of Him, who is the life. It can, in other words, it can, can, it can uh, prevent us from acting or re- as one or relating to one another as one. It doesn't make us anything less than what we are. We are either one spirit or we aren't born again. God only has one spirit to give you. And so we're saying last week, uh, we, we were talking about that only when we bring our mind and our ideas and our judgment and our doctrine and even our, our ideas about unity, it's when we bring those things into Christ that we begin to experience division, division in the flesh. We divide in the flesh what is one in the spirit, but Christ is never divided. And the spirit of truth, or you could say the revealing of Christ, or the renewing of the mind, whatever, whatever way you like to, whatever biblical way you like to talk about truth working in your soul, it brings us all to a place in our heart where, the, where we see one thing. How? How do we see one thing? Because we all believe the same teaching. No. Because we all have read the same book. No, because we all had the same pastor. No, because we all had the same experience of, of uh, spiritual gifts. No, because we decide it's high time to get along. I doubt it. The Spirit of Truth brings us to see one thing because there's only one thing that He sees and only one thing that He shows. This is called the unity of the faith. This is called the one faith, as mentioned in verse 5. doesn't mean there's one creed or one set of generally accepted articles of faith or one religious persuasion. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means there's only one thing that God sees, one thing that God has relationship with, and is trying to show the heart that will turn. There's only one view that is operating in His eyes. One view, one son that he knows, one sight that is before his eyes, one faith. The one faith is the knowledge of God, God's knowledge. It's what he sees, and it's what he's bringing us into. So growing up as a Christian is directly proportional to the measure that his view, which is called faith, is working in your soul. And he doesn't have opinions. Opinions are not part of faith. An opinion, by definition, is not faith. Faith is substance. It is the substance of what cannot be seen. It is where your soul shares his view, and you are therefore not blown to and fro by the wind of doctrines. You're not blown by false doctrines, and you're not blown around by true doctrines. Rather, you are anchored behind the veil in the reality of what God knows anchored in what God knows to be real. If if we were all sitting here this morning in the complete dark, no lights on, no light coming in, total darkness, we could possibly have an argument as to what my wife looks like. Somebody could insist, based on some experience they once had years ago, that she has black hair. Another another could jump in and say, I've heard she only has one leg. 
And then, and then there'd be someone else that could argue very, very strongly and brilliantly based on the incredible noise level they heard passing by our house that, that Jesse is the mother of at least 15 children. <laughs> but what would dispel the, uh, all of the opinions and bring everyone to the full knowledge of Jesse? What, 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 would it be the best argument? Would it, would it be the person who can most effectively defend their opinion? Or would it be when the many all came to one light and saw one woman? There would be no arguing over her hair, her leg, or her offspring once light revealed the fact of the matter. The unity of the faith. Faith is an experience of God's fact. It is one light showing you one sun. And so long as many souls are learning by that one spirit that is in them, they will come to what Paul calls the unity of the faith, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And we're getting, again, I'm getting ahead of myself because this is elaborated on in verse 13, Ephesians 4:13, the unity of the faith, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. But it's also stated here in verse 5 quickly. We have come to one faith, not one religion, not one conviction, but one God-given, God-given soul-conforming spiritual comprehension of the Son of God. And we who are baptized into that one Spirit, we will be led by that Spirit into God's view of salvation. And this faith that, is, that, that works in you, if this is the faith that works in you, it produces an expectation. It's not a question. It's, not a, it's a fact. If there is faith, then there will be hope, or better translated, expectation. 99 times out of 100, the word hope in your Bible should be translated expectation. It's not talking about a wish or desire. It is talking about something that is certain in its coming. It's like a woman who is pregnant. She is expecting. She is in expectation. It's like a farmer who has planted a crop. He's expecting. He's not really hoping. It's only a matter of providing the right environment and the increase will come. It's only a matter of not destroying or squelching what has been planted and it is certain to come forth. So faith, if it is the faith given to you by God, will produce in your soul a God-given expectation. Faith gives rise to expectation and expectation gives rise to love. Faith, hope, and love. Love is the substance, the experience, the encounter, the reality. God is love. And expectation will bring you into the experience of God. But faith comes first. Faith works in you according to God's view. And as it begins to work in you, it begins to change everything. And perhaps the greatest thing that is impacted by faith is the expectation of your soul. You begin to expect the appearance of what God has planted. In other words, you begin to anticipate an inward experience of the living Lord Jesus Christ. You wait for His appearing. You look to see Him. You wait with certainty. You look to Him, the author and finisher of your faith. And the expectation of God, the one who began a good work in you, he slowly, he slowly works in you according to his expectation. 
But before I say a whole lot about that, and I'll get back to that in a minute, I'd like to say something about true and false expectations. True and false expectations. This verse says that we come to one hope of our calling. Again, better translated, one expectation of our calling. And that is true. But that is only true if it is the expectation that is being worked in your heart by the Spirit of God. What I'm trying to say is that unfortunately, I believe many, probably most, believers have hope, have expectations set on completely imaginary things. Our expectations are the inventions of our carnal minds and so often not even remotely related to what God has given us in Christ. It is my opinion that for the most part, the church preaches wrong expectations. And I believe that you know that many people live long decades as Christians with expectations in God that are never realized. And of course, that is never because God does not provide and show and teach and lavish upon you everything that he promised. It is only because we are waiting for the wrong thing. We have created our own inheritance. We have imagined where this is supposed to go. So I just want to say very plainly, disappointment in God is born out of imaginary expectations. And I don't mean that you are expecting too much. I mean quite the opposite. You are expecting too little, something too insignificant, (coughs) as well as something in the wrong realm. (coughs) Something in the wrong realm and something unto the gain of the wrong man. We have imaginary expectations, imaginary expectations. We, We secretly demand that God meet them, knowingly or unknowingly. We dream up Oh, thank you. Just happened to have a full bottle of water. Ah, that helps, thanks. <coughs> we, we dream up our own version uh, of what the experience and outcome of salvation is. And then, and then, of course, we have to create all sorts of theologies and explanations to get God off the hook for not coming through with what we think he's supposed to do. The church promises that God will always do this, and he'll never allow that, and he'll make sure that this happens, and he'll not allow that to happen. And then when we're disappointed in the circumstances, we get upset with God. The God that we have crowned king of our circumstances. And so we find books, and we find empathetic pastors who will say things to you like, well, God works in mysterious ways. If you're lucky. If you're not lucky, you'll get a pastor that says you didn't have enough faith. What a horrible system. We invent, we invent what we are to expect from God. We make it up. We, we make up our expectations. It doesn't happen, and there's nothing left to do except to blame God or blame ourselves. But both self-condemnation and anger towards God are born out of false expectations. This invites you to think about that for a little while. False expectations of man, false expectations of God. I'm not sure what is more pathetic than the body of Christ calling out to God in selfish anticipation for something less than and irrelevant to 
what he has given us in his son. I read that statement several times after I typed it and I said, my goodness, that is... I wonder what that looks like to God when the body of Christ is crying out to him in selfish anticipation for something less than and irrelevant to what he has given us in his son. A people to whom he has given Christ ignorant of what he has given but pleading with him for something unimaginably less. This week, for the first time in a long time, many years, I, I, I actually watched a preacher on TV. And the church building, which was definitely like a football stadium, converted, was packed out with tens of thousands of people listening with bated breath and taking copious notes. It was a sea of human beings, clearly hungry to hear more of what was being said. And what was being said? Well, I mean, I'm just going to be frank with you. It was horrible. It, was, it, was, it wasn't just wrong. It was poison. It was Christian cancer, gangrene. This famous leader in the Lord's body, somehow making some distant reference to something in Ephesians chapter 1, was making the point that God, before laying the foundation of the earth, had it in his heart to provide a way for you and I to live abundant lives. And then he went on to describe these abundant lives. Enjoyable relationships, freedom from mediocrity, plentiful finances, positive self-esteem, victory over bad habits, perfect divine health, success in every endeavor, a right to be better than average, and on and on he went as my stomach turned. Why is that so horrible, Jason? Can't God assist in some of these natural things? Does he not at times heal our bodies and help our circumstances? You know that he does. But what you have here is a man-made inheritance. It's a cooked-up salvation. It has absolutely nothing to do with Christ. He might as well not even mention him. It has everything to do with personal gain in the natural realm. Why even quote the Bible? Why even mention the name Jesus? This sort of expectation has nothing to do with him, except perhaps that he is the one that, that's handing out the fringe benefits of believing the right things. What a distorted, Christless sellout. Ask me how I really feel about it. Exchanging the eternal and spiritual reality of life in Christ for a pile of vanishing soul candy in the natural realm, making God the fulfiller of all of our natural lusts and our, our lust for personal greatness. And we're bringing God's salvation so far, far down out of the heavens into the fulfillment of Adamic lust and greed, demanding God's Son grant us these whimsical desires of these narcissistic, unrenewed souls, and then, then ignoring what God has done by uniting us to His Son. We expect from him something so pathetically less than and so irrelevant to what he has given us. And then to top it off, we often take offense when he doesn't grant our little genie in the bottle requests. And that, a, that a literal sea of human beings could sit and not only tolerate that sort of teaching but lap it up with joy on their faces is a testimony to the blindness of the human heart. Jesus said it like this, John 8, 44, You are of the devil, and the lusts of your father you desire to do. That one was a murderer from the beginning. He has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks, he speaks 
from his own because he is a liar he, because he is a liar and the father of it and because I speak the truth you do not believe me I'm going to calm down now but I'm not mad I'm not mad at any person and I'm not mad at any church I'm just disgusted with the Adamic mind we are just that pathetic I am every bit as disgusting as anyone else I'll raise my hand and run to the front of the line for help I don't say that in condemnation. I say that in simple realization. But sometimes it just comes into my, my view so clearly. You wonder, you wonder how God could even save us and his son. But then it becomes even more apparent why our salvation begins with death. It begins with an end. Baptized into his death. Nothing of the old. Nothing of the first. Nothing of that man is allowed into this heavenly inheritance. We can hold on to our darkened understanding if we insist, but everything of God's true salvation is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. That's what 1 Peter says. That's a verse that's become just a joy to my heart. But I hope you can see how we have the wrong expectations. We have the wrong expectations, and we have expectations in the wrong realm. We've heard that God loves, and so we project our understanding of love upon Him and wait to see it in the earth. We've heard that God is good, and so we project our understanding of good onto God, and then we try to find it in the earth. But it is so much clearer and easier and purer and more real to expect the love of God to know the experience of God, to find the goodness of God where it can truly be known and experienced, and that is in Christ. Somebody sent me an email recently asking me if I still believe that God shows his goodness to us in the natural realm. And I responded to, to, to this email with, with a few comments and then, and then a little make-believe story. First, I said, yes, I believe that the goodness of God can be seen in this realm as well as in Christ. But then I said that it's honestly quite difficult to understand it, the goodness of God, that is, or to know it clearly anywhere other than Christ. I told this little anecdote. I said, suppose, suppose you're a person who's in desperate need of a job, okay? <clears throat> You've been praying about it, and suddenly out of nowhere you, you walk into your car, and, and a piece of paper flutters down in the wind and lands on your windshield, and lo and behold, it's a job application for what looks like the perfect job. You say, oh, Lord, you are so good. You fill it out, turn it in, and get the job. This has to be the goodness of the Lord. A manifestation of his great love for me. Well, a week into the job, you realize you hate it. Job's boring, your boss has bad breath, pay's not as good as you thought, hours are terrible, Maybe it wasn't the Lord. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is warfare from the enemy. So that night, after you get home from work, you get home, there's a message on your answering machine with another job offer. Thank you, Jesus. You are so good. This is incredible. In your love, you've delivered me from this bad job. But on your way to your first day of work at this new God-given job, your car runs out of gas on the side of the highway. Lord, what are you trying to teach me here? I know all things are working together for my good. So you get back in your car and you pray that the Lord and his goodness would send you a friendly motorist with, with a gas can, obviously. Lo and behold, somebody pulls up behind you. It's a police officer 
Surely he can help. Thank you, Lord. You are so good. But the police officer doesn't have any gas. In fact, he notices that your tags are expired. (laughs) And he writes you a ticket. And on and on and on and on and on we go. What are we doing? We're trying to find and define the goodness of God in, in natural things, circumstances, and experiences in the natural realm. We have expectations to know him, to know goodness, to know love through, through the constantly changing circumstances of the earth. We try to define goodness by experiences rather than see goodness defined as Christ. And of course, you know what we do? We, we always call the things that we at least temporarily think are good as the goodness of God. And the things that we don't necessarily like as much as the work of the enemy or a trial or a test. Now, these things are constantly changing, and so are our opinions about them. So our understanding of his goodness is always shifting, and it's confusing us as we walk through the variety of life circumstances. But in Christ, it is not that way. In Christ, we learn a goodness that, first of all, shames all other goodness, and second of all, is never changing. It's constant, it's perfect, it's concrete. You can rest in it regardless of circumstances. You can grow in it despite situations. You can count on it eternally. You don't have to guess anymore. You don't have to guess at what God is doing or saying or what he's trying to say. If only I could hear him. It's there as a permanent spiritual reality. It will be there when the earth hurts you. It will be there when the earth doesn't. It will be there when you are six feet under the earth. What are you expecting? That's what I'm asking you to think about this morning. What are you expecting? Does your expectation of God have anything to do with what God has promised? Did somebody tell you what to expect? Or did the Spirit of God reveal the expectation of the Father? Did the Spirit of God define what salvation is and where it goes? Maybe we're waiting for the wrong thing. Maybe we're expecting something that is irrelevant. Irrelevant to and incredibly less than what God is trying to show you. Wouldn't you feel really silly to know that you'd spent a lifetime expecting from God something that was not only puny, but unrelated to what God had provided you and His Son. Wouldn't it be a sad awakening to find out that you you had imagined an inheritance contrary to the one you were given? We come into the church, friends. We come into the church with this idea. And and, and frankly, we're guilty because we're the one that preached this idea. But anyway, we come into the church with this idea. Now my life, now that I've come to Christ, my life is going to be dot, dot, dot. You know, then we, we, either you or, or some leader fills in the blank. But before we even fill in that blank, we've contradicted salvation. We've contradicted the cross. The whole reality that you just came to isn't about now my life can be because what you just said yes to is now my life is lost. What you just signed up for in new birth was I've been crucified with Christ. I've been baptized into his death. I've been buried with him, reckoned dead. Your salvation isn't going to be the improvement of your life. It's going to be the discovery of his. 
And therefore, who in the world are you to set the parameters and to define the reality of this salvation? Who do we think we are that we can drag our carnal lusts into this relationship and make them relevant to God? How in the world can we put our expectations on him when he is the life of his body and it is he who must work his expectation in us? God has an expectation. Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 4 that we have come to one expectation. What is that expectation? Have we stopped staring at our list of personal expectations long enough to even consider that God has an expectation of his own? Ephesians 1.18, we read a prayer of Paul where he asks the Lord that the eyes of our heart be enlightened. I quote it every, every time I preach probably and, and, and in the prayer beforehand and afterwards. The, the eyes of our heart be enlightened in order to know what is the expectation of God's calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? God has an expectation. It's what you've been called to. It's God the Father's expectation. It has to do with him getting an inheritance in the saints. What is that expectation? It's a harvest. Not the harvest of many. Not the harvest of many, but the harvest of the one in the many. It's the increase of the one. The glory and exaltation of the one and only Son in and through his body. Christ formed in you. Christ increasing in your soul. And if that doesn't excite you as much as the synthetic counterfeit that you first fell in love with, then you and I have to get on our face and ask God to show us the riches of Christ, the riches of gaining Christ, and the utter insignificance of everything else. If that doesn't excite our soul, then we have no idea what we're talking about. If we as his body cannot, cannot drudge up some amount of interest in being filled up to the fullness of God and would rather hear some, some man proclaim this carnal utopia where dreams come true and God is the author of my success story and all the fringe benefits of Never Never Land, then God help us. Seriously. Seriously. By nature, our expectations, they're not only for the wrong thing, they are towards the wrong realm. They are, they are going to be, by nature, the things that we thought were gained before we found Christ. And if we're not careful, Christ will become the new means to the same end. If we're not careful, we'll have the same goal with a different path. But if that one spirit is allowed to teach us the way that he must, he must become the realization of God's expectation, then we'll begin to share God's point of view. 
And that expectation will never disappoint us. To, to have God's expectation filling your soul, it's, it's, that's the find a sure thing. That's a safe bet, guys. It's only a matter of providing the right environment and the increase will come. It's only a matter of not destroying or squelching what has been planted and it will come forth. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I don't know if God gave you that job. I have no idea if, they, if God sent that guy on the highway with the gas can. But I am positive that he gave you Christ. And if you will set your heart to know this gift, then you will find the love and goodness of God. If you will allow his spirit to teach you this salvation, then your expectation and God's expectation will be one and the same. And I'm running out of time. I, I, I want to say, I want to, I want to point you to a verse in 1 Peter. A few, and, and just, just give you a few comments about it. <coughs> this is my favorite, favorite scripture having to do with expectation in the entire Bible. Unfortunately, some of its greatness is obscured through bad translation. Uh, if you have a lit V or, or some literal translation, you're probably in good shape with this verse. If not, let me read it to you from the lit J. That's my own translation of this verse. <laughs> Unpublished. It's virtually identical to the lit V. Uh, but I spent some time this week on this verse, and so I'll read you my translation here. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in the middle of verse 3 and going through verse 5. The major translation error, for those who are interested, is, is this almost uh, complete ignoring of, of the perfect tense, perfect tense of what's, what's the, the passive participle in verse 4. Uh, if that doesn't mean anything to you, just ignore it. But some people actually ask me questions along those lines and stuff, so... Uh, and then there's a few minor little translation choices in some of the prepositions. But it was written and therefore should be read something like this. He has begotten us into a living expectation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven. For you, the ones being kept in the power of God through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a lot I'd like to say about those verses, and maybe, maybe we will at another time. But I just want to summarize what I understand Peter to be saying here. You and I have been born again of God into a living expectation through the resurrection of the dead. In other words, it is because... We have become partakers of him who is the resurrection, and we are of his resurrection, Romans 6 says, and the power of his resurrection is working in us, that we have this living expectation. And we have come into an inheritance that is purely heavenly. It certainly does bleed over into the earth in a variety of ways, but it is something totally incorruptible, something totally undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. There's the major translation here, having been kept. And we are being kept in this, 
the power of God through faith. Faith accesses, Romans 5, 2, faith accesses the grace in which we stand. We have come to a salvation that is spiritual, eternal, perfect, immaterial, incorruptible. And because we are in this new covenant, the day of the Spirit and not the letter, the age of salvation, this salvation is ours to have revealed. It is ready to be revealed. It is prepared to be revealed. The reason I love those verses so much is because they define the person, the place, the person and the place of our expectation. And then the necessity of it being revealed. Christ in resurrection is the person. Heaven and not earth, spirit and not flesh is the realm. And the revealing of Christ unto a real faith is the access. This is the expectation that the Spirit of God will work in us if we allow it. This is the one hope of our calling. The one expectation of our calling. And if our expectation comes to be along these lines, then it will never know disappointment. It will never be frustrated. It cannot be stopped. Amen. Let's pray.